I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. California has such a fascinating history of wine production. Anthropologists confirm that people have been living in modern-day California for well over 10,000 years. But there is not much archaeological evidence to support that fermented beverages were popular. There is some evidence of possible fermented beverages made from elderberries, manzanita, and wild grapes near the coast. But no finds point to overwhelming evidence that fermented beverages were important to the first cultures that inhabited modern-day California. In the 1500s, the Spanish began to settle in Central and South America. By 1542, the Spanish crown laid claim to modern-day California, and missionaries came to establish religious outposts. The Franciscans really got things going viticulturally in California. As early as 1540, they had planted mission grapes in Mexico. By 1629, there were mission vineyards in New Mexico and Baja. And in 1779, Franciscan Junipero Serra had mission grapes planted in San Diego. Serra was an interesting guy. He believed his purpose was to convert local populations in California to Christianity. And he traveled on foot despite a bad leg, which suffered from a bad snake bite earlier in his life and he gave zealous sermons that sometimes involved self-mortification. He established nine missions and confirmed around 5,000 people. All of these confirmations needed sacramental wine, and he had vineyards planted at his missions to supply his need. Thus, the early California wine scene emerged from Spanish missionary needs. The grapes he presumably planted, commonly known as mission grapes, now, this variety originated in Castilla-La Mancha in Spain, and it was brought to Mexico by Serra's Franciscan predecessors. You won't find mission grapes on the Spanish mainland today, but you can find them in the Canary Islands. Mission grapes remained a mainstay of California winemaking through the 1880s, and there are still about 600 acres in the Central Valley that are used for making fortified dessert wines. Meanwhile, the Revolutionary War wreaked havoc out east. While Serra had his first mission vineyards planted in 1778, George Washington struggled on several fronts to establish independent colonies. 
As Serra drank mission wine out west, the colonists were drinking mostly cider out east. European explorers were taking a great interest in California at this time. It's amazing to think that if Junipero had taken a walk along the coast one afternoon after planting his first mission vineyard, he may have looked out to see the HMS Resolution, led by Captain James Cook, who sailed down the coast that year to map it. Less than a decade later, an exploration voyage sent by Louis XVI landed in Monterey and sent back accounts of the mission system to France. But in 1821, Mexico successfully established independence from Spain, and by the 1830s, Los Angeles had its first commercial wineries. Then, just over two decades later, the U.S. declared war on Mexico, and by 1850, California was a U.S. state. A real turning point for the California wine scene was the gold rush that began in 1848. The population increased. In a two-year period, San Francisco's population increased times 25, and the people who came looking for gold wanted to drink. Cultures from all over the world mingled, and consumption of alcohol increased. In the 1860s, the Transcontinental Railroad was a major boon for the California wine industry. Suddenly, products had a much easier transport to the East Coast market. California's wine scene exploded. Augustin Heretzi brought dozens of new vine cuttings from Europe's vineyards that jump-started a new era in California winemaking. His contemporaries, George Yount, John Patchett, and Charles Krug, they grew California winemaking into a global business and were exporting wine to Europe just when Europe's wine production faltered due to the phylloxera epidemic. The next wave of important vintners really helped California wine to take off. Carl Wente, Charles Wetmore, Jacob Berenger, and Gustav Niebaum took everything to another level. But just when things had gained traction, the wine boom was almost entirely cut off. Phylloxera hit, followed by the global turmoil of World War I. And then, the almost unthinkable prohibition. prohibition. In 1920, California had 713 bonded wineries. But by the time Prohibition was repealed, only 160 remained. And many of these producers had changed their focus to grow robust, transportable grapes, or grapes suitable for other purposes. Decades of working knowledge and a connection to the wine market had been completely severed. And just when a post-Prohibition industry revival seemed potent, World War II put that on hold. If there is a bright side in all this history, though the events of the 1890s through the 1940s crippled the wine industry then and created the obstacle of reestablishment, California wine production had a rare opportunity to reinvent itself in a completely different manner. And we've gotten to watch this reinvention with front row seats. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, 
offset commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Fax Melee on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. How are you today? I'm good. So you make Wind Gap and, and Pax again today. How did you get started with the wine thing? Well, I, I, I got started in wine through restaurants. Working in restaurants, fell in love with wine, and eventually moved to California and started making the wine. A long uh, winding journey to get there, but that's the that's the root of, of what got me there is restaurants. And where was that? Predominantly Nantucket Island. I was very lucky to work in an establishment that had a great wine list. I helped unpack the boxes and started at the restaurant as a busboy and kind of a, a grunt. And um, servers would uh, invite me over to the tables to sell wine to their to their guests because I knew more about wine than them at you know, however, 18, 19 years, 19 years old than, than they did. So that was really, that's really what started it for me. Just fascinated with the wine and, and eventually started working for somebody who we both know uh, on Nantucket and uh, working in retail, uh, opening his wine shop with him. Just really immersed myself in the study of wine and fell in love with it and never really thought that I would be a winemaker. I was, I always held winemakers in such high regard of, because of the the magic that I was exposed to, that um, I just assumed it was something way beyond my capability, and eventually learned that it is relatively intuitive and follow your what you believe and uh, and you can succeed. So working in retail in in Nantucket, what were you drinking? What what's an amazing thing about where I I worked on Nantucket? Um, great little shop, uh, Fahey and Fromagerie. Amazing program because Michael was just so incredibly intuitive about wine himself. Michael Fahey. Michael Fahey, that's correct. You know, the, the, the wine was separated into two sections. We had wines under $15 all over the store, stacked waist high everywhere in the store. You could walk in and pick up anything, you know, from, you know, uh, Lyrac Blanc to, you know, Coupe Chardonnay Viognier Blend, which back then was probably $11, $12 a bottle. Screaming deal. Is it just great, inexpensive wines. And then the other half of the store was wines that were $150 to $1,000 a bottle. So the whole middle you know, that where 90% of the wines are that are sold in most retail stops were just totally skipped over in Michael's shop. It was the daily drinkers and the great stuff. And it was fascinating. And so, you know, I cut my teeth on, you know, amazing, inexpensive Beaujolais or Jura or, you know, Sicilian wine, whatever it was, you know, as long as it was a value, Michael wanted it in the store. And so that was amazing. And then, of course, we got to drink all the greats too. So um, that was quite an education. What was Michael like? He's like a nutty professor, you know, has trouble getting the same, you know, shoes on or, you know, the socks that match, but just knows wine like nobody else. 
you were working there and you meet Pamela. How did you guys meet? Uh, we met, how did we meet? My Pamela worked with my sister's boyfriend at the time. Uh, they all worked at the Wall Winnet Inn at Toppers at the restaurant out there. That's and a great place. Had some good food there. Yeah, beautiful place too. Beautiful. And what a wine list. And, and Michael was the wine director there for many years. <laughs> oh, before. I didn't know that. Yeah. He created the program there before he left to open his shop. Uh, Pam was friends with my sister and and her boyfriend because they worked together. I'd never, I hadn't met Pam. You know, they they were friends for for either a year or months before I actually met Pam. But I just met them at the beach one day, and um, I pulled up on my bicycle, and Pam was with my sister and and uh, and Philip, and uh, I took one look at her, and I was like, like, wow, I, I, I this is the girl that I would marry. You know, if if I were to get the chance. Uh, which is pretty funny because that actually ended up happening. I mean, she was with had a had a boyfriend and I had a girlfriend at the time, but it's an interesting thing that happened just kind of seeing her. And uh, eventually, I moved to uh, Arizona uh, when I left Nantucket to help my mother move, and uh, the option was going back to Nantucket or stay in Arizona. And in January, it seemed like a pretty good idea to be. Uh, in Arizona, and uh, gets a little cold in Nantucket. Gets a little cold in Nantucket. Uh, nothing quite like you know here because it is uh, you know right on the uh, Gulf Stream, so it stays pretty temperate. But uh, I was in Arizona, and um, Pam and my sister were having a brutal winter because of the weather, and they came out to Arizona, quit their jobs, and moved to Arizona. And um, uh, one night we were drinking some wine, and everybody went to bed, and. I asked Pam if she wanted to go for a swim, and that was it. And you bonded on the wine thing with Pam? Absolutely, absolutely. Both of us very, very interested in the growing of grapes and in wine. And we, we, we still, it's still a, a very uh, important part. Obviously, it's our, our livelihood. But other than that, it's really a, a, a bond between us as a great bottle of wine. Uh, we were actually both studying to be master sommeliers. We'd get up and we would spend hours, you know, at the coffee shop drawing maps, outlining appellations. You know, I would take an appellation, she would take an appellation. We would study them, and then we would kind of swap, and then we'd test each other on them. And it doesn't sound all that romantic, but it was just a great, a great way to spend time together and and to learn things. And I was lucky enough to travel back then to uh, to Europe a couple times and just really made me fall in love with it even more um, and made me also realize that I was much more interested in the soul of, of what was happening with wine rather than the wearing the, the suit and talking about wine. As much as I, I love that part of what I do today, at that point in my life, I just felt like when I would be walking through a vineyard with somebody in Europe, you know, these technical details that we seem to get hung up with in in the the selling of wine or the presenting of wine or the study of wine didn't matter as much to these folks as did the enjoyment of the wine or how it brought their family together or what it meant to them and just walking a vineyard with somebody like that i just thought to myself that that outlook on wine makes so much more sense to my sensibilities and that's when when pam and i when i clearly decided that i wanted to grow grapes 
uh, and be involved in the dirty, muddy side of wine rather than the pristine, pretty side of wine. And when that happened, it seemed to involve Syrah. Were there moments with Syrah that you had in Europe where you thought, oh, I like this grape? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I could say the same thing about, I mean, Syrah is definitely the path that I took, but I don't think that was part of the original plan. I would have been just as happy if I had settled down in Piedmont or Bone, both both places where we really were working to get to, to grow grapes. But logistically, maybe more difficult. Logistically more difficult. We spoke the language in California and uh, looking at the balance in our checkbooks, realized that California was much more practical and we could get jobs because of our experience. And, and that's exactly what we did. We decided to move to Sonoma. And um, where'd you work? Uh, I worked at Dean and DeLuca Corporation. I was hired as the wine buyer. Pretty funny story. I uh, sat down for my interview and I, 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 I had had Cal- well, many California wines, but they weren't what I knew, what I was the most comfortable talking about, let's say. Um, and I sat down to this interview and, you know, he was the gentleman who I'm still friendly with is uh, sitting me down in the interview and he says, well, where's the, you know, where's the, what's your favorite Cabernet from Napa? And I was just like, geez, you know, you know, Rutherford dust, you know, it's, that's, that's the only thing I could think of. And I was like, you know, BV makes great Cabernet from, from Napa. I mean, I really didn't have, I mean, I just really flubbed my way through the interview and just uh, somehow or another actually got the job. Because I was going to ask you that question as well during this interview. I was <laughs> I'm like, sure. That was the first one I was going to, but then I... And, and, and 20 years later, I still would be flubbing my way through the same <laughs> question. Uh, but anyways, ended up getting the job, was based in Napa, and then uh, worked very hard, accomplished a lot, and then started traveling for Dean and DeLuca, kind of became there, created a position for myself, kind of a, a national kind of role of making sure that the, the selections were were of the highest quality. And Dean and DeLuca and the other locations, not the California location, California location was always 100% California wine, but uh, the Washington DC and the uh, Charlotte, North Carolina store were wines from all over the world. Because that's, you know, on the East Coast, it makes a lot more sense. But Dean and DeLuca, we decided, was going to be a California-focused shop. Uh, and it was a, not my decision, probably not one that I uh, totally agreed with, but one that I took seriously and one that I really wanted to execute very well. Um, and then that's how I kind of ended up taking the Syrah route. You know, my job was to source the best wines. You know, I would go to Washington, D.C. and sit down at the desk and I would have all of the reps come in and be lined up. And, and I'd be like, well, I want, you know, uh, I, I remember distinctly one day I said, I want, you know, Andrew Murray Syrah. And the guy said, well, it's on premise only and there's just no wine available. And I sat I picked up the phone, dialed Andrew's number from memory. I said, hey, Andrew Paxmele from Dean and DeLuca, um, you know, I'm here at sitting here with John from your distributor in Washington, D.C. He tells me I can't get, uh, you know, Andrew Murray Syrah for the shop. You know, I'd like to start with 10 cases and I want to make sure that I can get it and I don't have to, you know, talk to this guy, you know. Ever again, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that was, the, that was the thing. I mean, I had the relationships in Napa. I mean, I had, you know, because... It, as you know, when you're a wine buyer, people want you to buy things, so they take very good care of you. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, I kind of uh, utilize those 
those relationships and helped Dean and DeLuca, you know, just get a really good program down so that we had some consistency from store to store. And it was a great learning experience. I mean, it was, uh, uh, I spent a lot of time away from home, had an apartment in Washington, D.C. because we had a, a huge transition in the uh, in the shop from what it was to what we wanted to make it. And that was, uh, that was amazing. That was, uh, you know, long, long days lugging things up and down stairs and, uh, and, you know, dealing with the distributors and getting everything done. And, and you know, as part of my job, you know, my goal was to just strive to not have every wine in California, but hopefully have the highlights. And so in, in choosing the selections, if I wanted, uh, you know, to have, if I had a rack that I say had 24 bottles of Merlot on it, you know, where's the best Merlot in California made, you know, you know, where's Pomerol? You know, and same thing with Cabernet, same thing with Pinot Noir, uh, and same thing with Syrah. And so that, that is kind of what made me fall in love with Syrah and the potential of Syrah in California. Just kind of immersing myself in trying to find Syrah. And there was just very few people doing it. Um, John Alban, of course, was specializing in Syrah. Uh, Bob Lindquist at, at Coupe, of course. Uh, Adam Tolmack, of course, wonderful wines. But most of them were um, South Central Coast. So um, in trying to kind of find these cooler climates in the North Coast and, and, and Syrah, Dellinger made a wonderful Syrah, but it was, you know, really second fiddle to his Chardonnay and Pinot Noir program. And so that was kind of the impetus to kind of like, you know, unearth wh where are these vineyards from, who's making Syrah, you know, uh, where are the Syrah vineyards planted, you know, where, and, and that's kind of how I started Pax Wine Cellars. I, uh, Pam and I decided it was a good idea. It was a plan. I found, had a great selection of vineyards. One of them discovered through uh, tasting with Donald Pats at Pats and Hall Winery, who was talking about this, uh, this kooky guy up in Humboldt County, Mendocino County, just at below the Humboldt County line, who would walk the vineyard with a magnifying glass and tweezers and just was just so meticulous of farming that it was, he'd never seen anything like it. And I was tasting this Chardonnay from this vineyard and I just, it just really spoke to me. I just like, this is, this is amazing, you know? And I said, Donald, you know, I got to get this guy's name and number. I'd love to call him. And and Donald's like, no, you can't have it. You can't steal my Chardonnay. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want Chardonnay. I want to talk this guy into planting Syrah. And he's like, Syrah? He's like, well, you know, that's no interest to us. And I was like, okay. And uh, Stuart and I had a great conversation, really hit it off on the phone. Um, asked him if he would be interested in planting Syrah. And he told me that he had just returned from a trip to France and smuggled back these boxes and boxes of, of cuttings from, from France. I think they labeled the box furniture. I think the uh, the idea was that the the sticks were supposed to be like rattan furniture or something. Um, and he planted these uh, on their own roots and um, really had uh, this amazing site. And and so with Alder Springs and a couple other little vineyards, we were going to give a Syrah-only winery from the North Coast a shot. I had a friend who um, uh, Michael Fahey and I had done uh, all the wines for his wedding. And when I say we did wines for the wedding, we, you know, went to knocked on the door at Clos de Tarte and said, we need, you know, a hundred magnums of some vintage, what do you have, you know, type thing, going to Yakim and buying three liters and going to, I mean, it was uh, quite a wedding, <laughs> needless to say. So this gentleman had sold his company, started making candles in his basement and sold his company for, you know, more than the GDP of most countries. 
And um, he was going to be the backer, and I had a business plan. And uh, I also had a, a, a Michael Fahey had introduced me to another gentleman who uh, would eventually uh, become the partner because he was, I'd gone to him for advice, and he said that he wanted to be the investor. And Pax Wine Cellars was born. Um, we'd hired a winemaker, actually hired two. Um, I was going to be the face of the brand. I was going to sell the wine. I was going to, you know, work in the vineyards and just kind of make sure everything was kind of, you know, done well, uh, done right, and done uh, in a very traditional fashion. And uh, first day of grapes coming in, they're put into the tank. Water was added. Acid was added. Yeast was stirred in. Enzymes were added. And I just was, I was like, what the, what the hell are we doing here? And like, oh, this is how wine is made in California. And I was like, I don't, I don't really think that, that, that this is how wine should be made in California or anywhere else. And he's like, oh, this is what we have to do. I was like, why don't we just take some of the grapes and not do that to them? And we can compare. He said, oh, it's, you know, it's be throwing it away. You know, it'd just be a, it'd be a nightmare, you know? And I said, okay, you know, and process the grapes and I was there punching down and pumping over and it was, you know, we were four or five days out from our second pick and um, we started getting closer and closer to the the day that I was, you know, I guess I didn't know we were five days away from the pick, but I knew we were, were going to pick soon. And come the day that I was walking the vineyard, tasting the grapes and kind of deciding that I felt like it was time to, to harvest, I decided not to call the winemaker to tell him that I was decided to pick the vineyard. And then the grapes came to the winery and everybody's looking around. They're like, you know, where's your guy? And I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. And uh, I was like, but I am sure that I just want you guys to lay all these bins out for me over here in the shade. And uh, I'm going to hop in and crush them by foot. And then we'll pick them up by gravity and dump them into these tanks. And then we're going to let it ferment naturally. So, you know, here's the work order that's blank with my signature. And uh, they didn't care, you know, I brought them tequila and beer and they thought that that was great. To this day, uh, the first three wines from that vintage, the two that I crushed by foot and made without anything are still pretty decent wines. And the one that was made the other way is not a very decent wine in my opinion. And that was the beginning of me becoming a winemaker out of pure necessity, nothing, nothing more than that. I, I still, when people ask me if I'm a, I still don't even consider myself a winemaker because I've never been officially anointed one. I've always just kind of, the grapes have come into the winery and I've turned them into wine. So I don't know if that makes me a winemaker, but that's what I end up doing. And what year was the first harvest for PAX? 2000. You decided at what point to start doing multiple vineyard bottlings? Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm a geek, you know, I'm a, at, at the at the end and beginning of the day, I'm I'm just purely a wine geek. And when we would harvest these vineyards and I would taste these wines, it was just I I just wanted to share that with with people. I thought that that's what people wanted. I thought that's why people were buying the wine to begin with is because they wanted to taste interesting things. You know, it's so much to the point where first crop from a vineyard called Griffin's Lair, a vineyard which I still work with to this day, we. Harvested the first crop, 2002, uh, made the wine, and I just assumed it was going to go into our cuvee. I mean, it's first crop, you know. It was, I'd been told my whole life that, you know, vines had to be a certain age in order to make a, a wine good enough to stand on its own. And uh, 
I'm literally there at the winery, you know, with the 10 barrels of Griffin's Lair in front of me with the pump hooked up, you know, the bulldog with the gas hooked up and I'm getting ready to make the blend. And I just pick up the phone. I'm like, you know, Wells, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? You know, Wells Guthrie, Copan Wines, right around the corner, a good friend. I was like, are you around? What are you doing? Can you get over here? He's like, yeah, I mean, I can be there in 20 minutes. What do you need? And I'm like, I, uh, the second opinion. And uh, Wells came over and I was like, taste this. I mean, this is really cool stuff. You know, it's really singular. It's really different from everything else. It's got a great identity. It's rustic and wild and neat, you know, Syrah, pure Syrah, you know, wild expression. I'm like, you know, the blend's really good with it. I'm like, but what do you think? Should I bottle a couple barrels on his own? And he just kind of sits down and we taste through the wine together. And he's like, why wouldn't you bottle it on its own? What's, what's, what's your hand? What's the deal? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, no one's ever heard of Griffin's Lair Vineyard. You know, it's, uh, it's young vines, you know, is, is this wine going to age well? You know, is this like, I mean, I mean, I'm going to charge 45, 55 bucks for something that I don't even know what it's. No one has any experience with this. I mean, I, he's like, this is as good or better than any Syrah I've had from the Sonoma Coast. He's like, why wouldn't you want to get that wine out on the market as soon as possible so that people can taste it? And so there, you know, 12th hour decision, you know, there I am with the pump hooked up, right, ready to go. And uh, when, you know, we bottled a Griffin's Lair in 2002, and I've bottled one every year since. Just bottled the 2012 this past fall. So it's... Uh, We've been working with the vineyard for a while, and that is, you know, that that's what that's what drove the whole thing. And and it, of course, of course, it got a little bit of out of hand because we ended up at one point, I think, in one a particular vintage. I'm not sure if it was, I think it was 2005. I think we had, you know, 18 different bottlings, you know, and that's probably that's just a little too much to ask of your customers. And you know, in that lineup of wines, there was wines from Magic Vineyard on the Sonoma Coast that are 12.2% alcohol and wines from Obsidian Vineyard that are, you know, 15.5% alcohol. It made perfectly good sense to me. They were both Syrah. They were both beautiful expressions of their site. Neither one of them was a forced style. You know, I didn't want to make Magic 12.5% alcohol. That's just what it was. When the grapes were, were ripe and we crushed them and they fermented. That's what the wine ended up being. I mean, I, I don't, didn't really, wasn't really hung up with trying to maintain a, a particular parameters for the wine. I was just really working with the site. And the same with the, the, the wines that were bigger and richer. I mean, warmer sites take a little longer for things to come into balance. I mean, that's why warmer sites you know, have that expression, uh, you know, whether it's Australia or California or, or, or wherever it may be. But, you know, having 18 wines uh, that were so different from one another was kind of the entire, my entire intention. I mean, that, that's what I wanted. I wanted people to have this study of Syrah. I wanted everybody to be part of the journey. I'd be everybody to be, you know, invested in the, you know, what really mattered about what we were doing. And um, people just didn't understand the fact that, you know, that, the, that I may, would make the, this vineyard in a different style. And I tried to explain that we really don't have a style. We just bring the grapes in and turn them into wine. But it's kind of hard to explain to people because it's kind of said so often that it almost means nothing. It's kind of like the word terroir. It's just batted around so much that it has 
basically no meaning at all when you're discussing it as part of your sales promotion. Of course, it has a lot of meaning when you are when you when you mean it, but when you're just using it to sell wine, it's. I, th- I think I I think that makes sense what I'm saying. So that was kind of the decision that I made. Again, even though it made perfectly good sense to me. I mean, I I can go to this. I I have a, a bottle of of Chapoutier Hermitage, and I have a bottle of Chapoutier Crows Hermitage. I know they're both 100% Syrah. I know that the Hermitage is 15% alcohol. I know the Crows Hermitage is 12 and a half, and I love them both um, because they taste like what they're supposed to taste like. And that's kind of how I felt about our wines. But again, too confusing for the customers. So the decision was made to kind of cut out the portion of wines that were from the very extreme coast. And uh, so the lower alcohol ones, the lower alcohol ones. Yeah. The magic vineyard, Armagh vineyard, Nellison vineyard, and just focus on the, the ones that were garnering all the attention. The Cause big, I believe they were, there they, was a lot of attention being paid for a fairly big style. Syrah, I, I believe at that time I remember serving them. Yes. With, with, without a doubt, we were very fortunate with accolades. So I loved those Syrah's that were 12% alcohol just as much, if not more than the other Syrahs. So I didn't really want to let those vineyards go and then see my neighbor make the wine, you know? And that's another thing, you know? I mean, I would see these vineyards and I would, I don't want anybody else to make wine from this vineyard. I want to make the wine from this vineyard. And that's one of the reasons we had so many vineyards. But uh, that's, my wife and I then decided, well, why don't we just start a little project that we can do, we can just focus on, we can just make one wine, Sonoma Coast Syrah, call it Wind Gap. Uh, the name kind of hints as to the style, because that was the thing with, you know, Pax Griffins, Pax Magic, Pax Obsidian, you know, all of these vineyards, you, you, there was no way to, for you to know, I mean, what it was going to taste like. I mean, you could look on, for the alcohol on the bottle, but still, I mean, you know, from the cracked pepper and olive notes of Magic to the big roasted plum black pepper of, of obsidian, you know, there's no way of telling. So create a label, create a brand that we could give a home to these vineyards and, and keep working with these vineyards and, and do that. And, and Hey, wouldn't it be fun? You know, we, I, I've, I've always drive by this little block of Pinot Gris, uh, on the way up to one of our Syrah sites. And I would always stop and just kind of wonder at the grapes. I mean, they're just beautiful ones. They, as they ripen, they just get this amazing color to the skin and just thought like, wow, wouldn't it be great just to like, to capture that color of those grapes in the bottle and, and sell the wine, you know, fermented on its skins, you know, really do a really classic traditional skin fermented Pinot Gris that's clean and bright, not oxidative, delicious, you know? So, you know, that's what we'll do. You know, Wind Gap will be this boondoggle. You know, we, we were very successful at Pax Wine Cellars. We didn't need Wind Gap to, we didn't need it to lose money, but we, we certainly weren't doing it to, to feed ourselves because uh-huh. in the spectrum of where this was i mean pinot grigio by the glass was still fairly popular at some restaurants in the country and you're doing pinot gris with color and i would imagine that the person ordering that not expecting that might be a little freaked out so you know this probably wasn't a huge like you weren't we're gonna take the country by storm on romato pinot gris because i'd never even seen one from the u.s before i saw yours i'd yeah. seen it from italy but never of course uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think there was ever uh, any uh, delusions of changing the world, but there, there, there was always the hope that it would find a home, whether it was in the glasses of our mailing list customers 
or whether it was, uh, you know, on a tasting menu in a restaurant, um, hand sold by somebody that, uh, that was selling it because he believed that he or she believed that it would, uh, complement somebody's meal. And that was the intention. I mean, I, I think our first vintage was 2007 and I think we made 125 cases. Th there was a point um, and this is not an exaggeration that I had drank more of our Ramado styled Pinot Gris than I had drunk of any Pax wine just because it went with the food that I ate. I mean, it was, it went with vegetables, it went with chicken, it went with fish. I mean, I just, I don't sit around eating rack of lamb and prime rib and um, those things every single night. I mean, I thankfully not every single night. I mean, I, I love those things, you know, I love firing up the grill and eating those things. And I love having a great rich wine, but my life is, uh, you know, I can't eat that way every day and I drink wine every day. So it made more sense, but, but yeah, the, the, the Pinot Gris was a real leap of faith. I mean, a real leap of faith. And, you know, if it wasn't for Mark Ellenbogen at, uh, the slanted door, and, um, you know, I think that first year, I think Polaner probably, you know, they were kind of looking at me like, what? I don't, I don't think they got more than 10 or 14 cases, you know, to kind of experiment with. And definitely a lot of people kind of embraced it and they still do, you know, uh, the tasting yesterday, you know, everybody like, why aren't you showing the Pinot Gris today? You know, so that's really nice to hear. I mean, but, you know, Ellen Bogan had it on his tasting menu at the slanted door and uh, they continue to work with the wine today. And uh, they've, they've just, they really made that wine. They've got that, they put that wine in front of all the right people. They put it at the right time. I mean, it really, it really is, it really is cool. And again, we still don't make over, you know, I think the most we've ever made is 230 cases or something in the largest crop ever. And, and that's great. You know, we sell through everything we make and, and, uh, it's got its fans and, uh, it's got its, uh, detractors. That's for sure. <laughs> what is the range of production for Wingap? What do you make today? Gosh, uh, Wingap is, um, I believe we're probably about 5,000 cases today, finishing with the 2013 harvest. That is uh, predominantly, well, the largest production wine is a, a wine made from a grape called Trousseau Gris, which is a wild, uh, crazy little thing. Um, and then a Sonoma Coast, an entry-level Pinot Noir, uh, and then a Sonoma Coast Syrah. And that's the kind of the, the, the ballast of the, of the production. And then there's, uh, you know, a couple hundred cases of Pinot Gris. You know, we make a barrel of Blaufrankisch from this crazy block of vines on top of Spring Mountain. We, we make, you know, a rosé from Nebbiolo that's picked at 17 bricks and whole cluster pressed in the concrete. Um, and we plan to grow. We plan to make more Syrah. Syrah has, uh, even when people were selling horrible bad jokes about Syrah and couldn't that, that nobody could sell it. That was never the case for us. Our Sonoma Coast Syrah from Wingap, 06 was the first vintage. We started selling that, I believe in spring 09. Yeah, that's when Wingap was launched in 09. People just right away, I mean, they were just really, really embraced that wine, really loved the, that expression of Syrah. It's always been around 12% alcohol. The 2011 didn't quite make it to 12, it's about 11 and a half. But that's because of the vineyards. It's just uh, this super spicy, super extreme site. And uh, we're looking to add a couple of sites. Looking, I'm added, adding two uh, right now, I believe. Those are almost locked up to expand that production. I mean, we would, I would love 
for that wine to, I would love to make a couple thousand cases of Sonoma Coast Syrah that tastes like that and have it represented all over so that people can taste that wine. That's, that's, the, that's the goal. So we do have growth planned for Wind Gap, um, both uh, Pinot Noir and uh, Syrah from the Sonoma Coast. But currently, most of the production is Trousseau Gris, which isn't something that every winery would say. So how did you get involved with that? I was looking for um, white grapes that uh, we could ferment in concrete and bottle and sell early, whether it was French Columbard or Vermentino or it, it made no matter to me what it was. I wanted it to be easy to drink, high in acid and delicious. That was really the only thing I wanted it to be. And um, I actually used to floor stack the Fanuki Trousseau Gris that uh, Peter Fanuki, who does own the, the vineyard that we purchased the grapes from, uh, he would make wine on occasion. And I distinctly remember him pulling up in his um, you know, 1957 Ford van, you know, loaded up with Trousseau Gris cases in the back and taking them to all the wine shops, looking to sell some wine. And I, and I thought, man, this is amazing. You know, what, what is Trousseau Gris? You know, I've never heard of it. And Peter's very, very proud of the Trousseau Gris in his vineyard. And, and I just thought it was fascinating. So I bought it and floor stacked it at Dean and DeLuca. So when I was looking for grapes, a kid that worked for me uh, was driving to work and he called me and said, uh, I saw that uh, Peter Fanuki is selling Trousseau Gris. It's on, uh, it's on, you know, Sonoma County Grape Marketplace website and, uh, you know, it's ultra cheap and uh, you should go take a look at it. And uh, I did. And I drove over there and uh, walked this crazy vineyard, just a ramshackled, gnarly mess, old vines that are chest high with these crazy canopies and weeds up to your waist. And just, you could just like, it's this flat, sandy site. I mean, it is just a, a really ugly, you know, place that uh, makes this incredible wine. So it's, it's really, it's really neat. Uh, so yeah, we started in 2009 and uh, we bought a ton and a half of grapes and pressed it and fermented it in concrete. It was a huge hit and we've pretty much doubled production every year up till now. And so we bottled 1600 cases last Wednesday of the 2013 Trousseau Gris. It's the largest skew in the lineup, but there's probably more Pinot Noir uh, with just all of the vineyards together. But yeah, by far the biggest skew. So you worked at PAX and you worked at Wind Gap, and did you see a different buyer for those wines? Like, were those kind of a different buyer set or a different region set? Yes and no. Um, uh, yes, because there is quite a few people that were very um, strong supporters of PAX that were very disappointed with the Wind Gap wines. There were people that did not really care for the PAX wines that have really embraced the Wind Gap wines. And something that's really amazing and really makes me very proud is that Wind Gap has this huge following of people that have never heard of PAX. They've found Wingap on its own merit, and that's that's pretty cool. But there's also people like myself and like probably like you and probably like a lot of people we know who drink with an open mind and love a 12% alcohol bottle of Syrah just as much as they like a bottle of Syrah from 
from Italy, you know, or a bottle of Syrah from, from Cote Roti or a bottle of Syrah from the Languedoc or, you know, somebody that loves, a, you know, big, rich Chardonnays, whether it's Merceau or whether it's Aubert uh, that loves a Chablis or a Wingap Chardonnay. So I'm not sure why, why everything is so divided or people are trying to make everything so divided because I, I don't drink, I don't eat one type of food. I don't drink one type of wine. I mean, I, I mean, I celebrate all, I mean, I love the traditional wines. I love modern wines. I love, you know, crazy rustic stews and I love having the 35 course omakase, you know, I mean, I, and I, and I think there's a lot of people are, are the same way. Not, not everybody, but, but a lot of people. And talking to you, I realized I had it wrong. The way I had understood it out here, far from California, is that Pax had a falling out with the Pax partners at the winery. He started up Wingap because he had a change of heart about what kind of style of wine he wanted to make. And then he made lower alcohol, offbeat grape varieties at Wingap that he really was into because he wasn't so into the Pax wines anymore. But clearly, I missed the boat on that. Well, that's certainly the story that's most often told. I think when you tell a story, when not when you tell a story, when a story is told, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's better to have a, you know, a, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know why that is. Well, because there's, there's quite a few people that have come out and said that, um, friends of mine, um, that have had, you know, the so-called change of heart. And I think what I had was, I think I just had an aha moment. I mean, I, I, I told, you know, I've, I've told the story how I started making wine. I just assumed I was doing what was correct. I mean, if this vineyard, I mean, th that's, that's the problem with California. I mean, just because we can, doesn't mean we should, um, we can make a very, I mean, we can make monstrous wines in California, but so can, you know, the, 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 the worst Appalachians in the world. I mean, what, what the greater Appalachians of the world can make are wines of delicacy and wines of purity. Not that, not that, not that a big wine doesn't have purity. That's, that's, I shouldn't say that, but I think, I think what I started, I mean, I was, what, first of all, I mean, I, I assumed that my, because everybody was telling me how great my wines were. The Pax wines. Yeah, the Pax wines. I just assumed that, that I was doing it right. Um, and I would drink the wines and I'd be like, whoa, those are, wow, those are, those are something else. You know, those are, whew, that's a, that's a, wow, cool. And yeah, and everybody likes it. You know, that's, wow. So I must be doing it right. And I mean, I'd open the wine advocate and, you know, my my favorite wines in the world, you know, Jamay and Alamond are getting 87 points and I'm getting 97 points. And I'm like, well, how is that possible? These wines are, anybody can taste a bottle of Alamond and it's clearly better than a Pax wine, right? I mean, doesn't everybody see that? Like, why are, why are we scoring higher points than, than the greatest wines on the planet? And, you know, this, this kind of, you start to kind of realize that maybe you shouldn't, you know, listen to so much to what everybody tells you. And, 
And I, uh, I just started, you know, and I always told people I would walk vineyards and I go, you know, your packs, you know, you, you make these really big wines and, you know, I assume you're going to pick them really ripe. And I'd be like, well, no, you know, I mean, if these grapes are right at 22 bricks, I'm going to pick them, you know, that's, that's the whole goal. That's what I'm after. And, uh, and then that's what we ended up finding is vineyards that we could actually do that with. I mean, they're, the wines aren't thin or anemic or, you know, whatever people say about wines that are 12% alcohol. I mean, they're rich and they're, they have lots of stuffing and super, you know, complex flavors and, and they're delicious. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I had a change of heart. I think I'd kind of just kind of figured it out, just kind of realized that I didn't have to swing for the fence, that what was more important was making wines with a little bit more uh, subtlety to them. And you can see that evolution in the Pax wines. I mean, from 02, uh, and, and that really, that, 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 that aha moment came with like the 04 vintage, which was very, very hot. I mean, the 02s are still very pretty wines. They're big and rich, but but, you know, again, that's, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around here a little bit, but people would always be like, gosh, I'm, I'm surprised that Robert Parker likes these wines because they're stimmy, they have a lot of acid, and they're hugely tannic. They're not really the type of wine that Robert Parker typically gives super high scores to. Um, so for as big as the Pax wines were, they were never distemmed. They were always 100% whole cluster. They were always crushed by foot. You know, they were always loaded with acid, lots of tannin. You know, they were very... You know, they're, you know, they tasted like Syrah rather than tasting like anything red wine. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. I mean, I have no regrets. I think that the wines, in looking back, could have been better. But I mean, I, I'm going to walk out of here and think that I could have done a better job on this interview, too. So, I mean, I, I think everybody feels that way. If, if you create something, you always get, you always second guess it. If, if you've never created anything, then you can't really understand that, that feeling of, 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 of creating and, and, and second guessing your, uh, you know, what you've, what you've, what you have created. But yeah, so I, I don't, I, I don't know that it was a, a change of heart. I, I think it was just a, you know, a realization that no Thierry Alamon would not pick this vineyard at 26 bricks. He would pick this vineyard at, you know, 23 bricks, you know, even if he knew he could get it to 28 bricks, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so that, that's kind of, I think, what happened to me. There was a falling out though. And then now you're back at PAX you just did the new offer for the PAX wines. You weren't there for a few years. How would you sum up that? period of time uh partnership issues just kind of a uh just a disagreement of where we were going and what we were doing and how we should be doing it success is uh, uh you know I, I think failure really brings out the worst in people but i think success does as well um and so there was just things happening that my wife and i did not agree with and so we, uh, let's see, we owned uh, 45% of the brand, of the business, and our partner owned 55%. So he kind of had the controlling interest. And um, it was going to be a very hard battle to fight. And we wanted the brand, and we offered to buy it. And uh, because his interest was the, the higher, uh, you know, the controlling interest, 
you know, his number for us to buy him out was, you know, 30 times what it should have been. And our number for him to buy us was, you know, uh, 10% of what it actually should have been. And I didn't think that either of those options were correct. So I just decided to dissolve the business because I have the right and power to do so. Uh, and so after I filed to dissolve the business, I was sued and terminated uh, from the business. And then that started uh, 18 months of litigation uh, where I was up uh, at six in the morning um, uh, every single day. It was a full, my full-time job was litigating and uh, it is nasty business. And uh, it was uh, not fun. It was um, very hard, it was very, uh, very hard because you can you can uh, you can pretty much make up anything you want, and if that's not working, you can tear that piece of paper up and make up something else if you think that's going to work better. And nobody thinks that that's an issue if your story changes a couple of times. So at any rate, um, litigation was finally uh, you know the judgment came down and uh, uh, my wife and I. Uh, own the name. We own the. We, we're free to do whatever we want. Um, so we're, we're there's there's no winner uh, in litigation. Uh, you you've heard that the lawyers win, and um, I'm sure mine did, and I'm sure his did. But uh, him and I were pretty, you know, beat up by beating on each other, and uh, nasty business, nasty stuff. So. Uh, so we're we're happy to, we're happy with the judgment and um, and we're really happy that we survived, so that we could just stick to making wine because that's all I really know, and what I really enjoy, and um, some people think I'm okay at it, so um, so that's that's why we're we feel very fortunate. Um, and WinGap was amazing. You know, we had we were WinGap was in the works before and during this was happening. So we we had all of this wine and barrel and all of these things that we had planned to do. And WinGap was this amazing opportunity and this amazing you know savior for us because what was going to be our boondoggle turned into our livelihood. And uh, we're very fortunate that uh, people embraced the wines like they did because they were quite different. And, you know, we, we, we did that. We, we, again, we launched the, the wind gap with the best intentions of complimenting what we were doing at Pax Wine Cellars. I assumed that all the people, all the wonderful people that came to our dinners here in New York or in San Francisco or wherever we were putting on a dinner, I assumed that everybody would enjoy a fish dish or a, a, a vegetable dish with all of those meat dishes we were having because the Pax Wines were, you know, kind of tough to pair with anything other than duck or lamb or steak or something of uh, with lots of richness and lots of fat. So, you know, the launch of WinGap was, was going to complement that. And, you know, here's this and, you know, you can, you can have this wonderful bottle of Trousseau Gris that is bright and crisp and delicious before you get into these really meaty monster wines. And now it's, it's really great that we get to relaunch the PAX brand to complement what we're doing at WinGap. So it's really, really coming full circle because as much as we wanted, like Griffin's Lair was labeled under the WinGap uh, label for a couple of years there. Uh, now it's uh, back with the PAX label on it. 
while it was interesting and while it was important at at the time to have Griffin's Lair uh, under Windgap because it's nice and you're having a meal or you're going through to have a bigger wine to finish with. Um, it just, again, we you know we wanted people to see Wind Gap on the label and we want them to know exactly what they're getting. And, and the, the Griffin's Lair kind of took us outside of that kind of rule that we had set for ourselves. Um, and we, we, we've never made Griffin's Lair differently. You know, it's, it's not like, it, you know, like, Ooh, it's going to be Wind Gap. We should pick it early and make it really, you know, that's not, that's, that's, that, that would suck if we did that. I mean, that's just not fair to the vineyard. That's not fair to our customers. That's not fair to me. So, you know, the wine, you know, the, the O2 was 13.7% alcohol. The O3 was, you know, 14.1. The, the O4 was the, by far the ripest at, at, uh, at, at 15.1 and, you know, O6 and O7 back to the low 14s. And so, you know, the, the wine, we've never made it different. It's always been a big wine regardless of what it is. And so, um, and even though it is smack dab in the middle of the Petaluma wind gap and really the reason I gravitated to that area, to that Appalachian in California, I think it's it just when, when, when I would be, when I would taste that wine uh, with the wind gap label on it, I'd be like, well, this tastes like a Pax wine. It doesn't taste like a wind gap wine. So that's, that's why it's nice to, you know, that the vineyards decide, you know, we don't decide, you know, you know, we, we, we thought it worked because of where it was, but the vineyard itself just makes a wine that is, that is bigger and richer. And, and that's why it's back under the PAX label. You sent out the offer for PAX. What was that feeling like for you? Wow. You know, it's, it's, so it, it's been a long time in getting this offer ready, new platforms, mailing lists, merging data, you know, backend programs that enable you to you know, sell wine to consumers, new everything. So, every, you know, new backend, new frontend, new, all of this stuff is, is daunting and hard work and label design. And, you know, it's like giving birth. It's uh, not that I know what giving birth is like, but it's, it's, it's all encompassing. It's, uh, it's a lot of hard work. And um, to, to have that completed, and to be sitting in my hotel room this morning at my desk and looking out over the New York skyline and like sitting back and it's like, you know, are you sure you want to send, you know, it's, you know, it's, you've tested <laughs> and you, you include you, the yeah, attachments, yeah. you know, it was a lot of testing. I mean, I was on the, you know, we were having uh, dinner last night and I'm outside on the sidewalk and 22 degree weather with my jacket inside on the back of my chair and trying to figure out why, you know, a link wasn't working or something last night. So lots of testing and lots of hard work from my sister and my wife um, to, to make sure that this morning when it asked me, are you sure you want to send this offer that I was sure and sitting there waiting for that. Okay. From them and uh, actually hitting the button and kind of leaning back. I actually was just kind of sitting there staring at the screen and I just, yeah, you know, I, I I was excited. I was sad. I was you know I didn't know if I should laugh or cry. It was it was uh, it was it was crazy. So I took a picture of the screen and tweeted it. Seems like the what you do these days. <laughs> I mean, you were a small town guy in art school. You took a restaurant job to pay for a car. Yeah. Fast forward a bunch of years, you've worked at a, a corporate chain of stores, which you know moved a lot of wine and dealt with a lot of dollars one way or another and you started three wineries multiple business partners some intense litigation 
what do you draw on during the hard part and how did you develop the skills to stick with it and survive it? Oh, um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed. You know, I, I said it in the opening paragraph of my, my offer that I was, I sent out this morning. I mean, I, I, I get up every day and I put my boots on and I go to a winery uh, or I go get up at the crack of dawn and go into a vineyard. I mean, if, if I, if I were to do something, if I were to do something as horrible as to not ha not to get that opportunity anymore, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, that would be a, a real, you know, a, a real, a real hard thing to deal with. I, I've put, I've put everything, all of me into what I do. I mean, I, when, when I started Pax Wine Cellars, I, I, you know, eventually this, the, this room in the, in the winery became a kitchen, but it was my bedroom. You know, I had a quick disconnect on a shower head and I bungee corded it, it to a pump, uh, punch down stick. And I would shower at the winery in the morning and I would, I would, you know, put on, brush my teeth and put my boots on and I would work until I fed fall asleep and I would call my wife and tell her I was going to bed and I would wake up and tell her I was still alive and go out and hook on my shower head and take a shower. And I mean, I was, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I fought so hard for it because I built it with my two hands. My partner is, is a very hardworking uh, my my ex partner, uh, very driven, very hard working guy. Um, so it's not that he didn't do. Uh, I mean, he 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 he's as much to to the success of the sales of the wine. I mean, he was, you know, an unbelievably hard worker. But I mean, as far as what was being created, that was that was me. Um, we couldn't afford to hire people to help. Uh, we were very bootstrap, um, and uh, it was just me. I mean, I would drive to get the gas. I would drive to pick up the grapes. I was, it, it was me. I mean, those those first vintages are. There's one person that did everything, and you know whether it was taping the box closed or cutting the box open to pack a to pack a, a box going to a customer. I mean, it was just me. And, you know, to this day, I mean, my wife reminds me, you know, this is your dream. It's not my dream. <laughs> so I'm fortunate of her uh, allowing me to and supporting me to to do this. And I'm I'm very fortunate that I somehow was given the opportunity to do it as far as uh, what, uh, the skills or whatever to to persevere. Um I have no idea. I've never, I've never thought about that. I never, I just assumed that I was doing what everybody else would do in the same situation. So we were at the tasting yesterday. You had the Wind Gap wines, which have a strong following in New York. It's in New York, the tasting. And then you have the Pax wines. And towards the end of the tasting, all the Pax wines were poured out. Still had some Wind Gap wines on the table, which surprised me. Do you think there's a lot of pent up curiosity about what uh, is going to be the next few vintages with PAX now that there weren't those vintages during the litigation period and now that you're back? I hope so. <laughs> I I hope that 
people are interested. I hope that people are intrigued. I hope that people are engaged. And I hope that people are willing to give us a second chance. Hopefully, hopefully the people that supported us didn't didn't get too much pulled into the the ugliness of what was happening behind the scenes. Hopefully they were not scarred by that and hopefully they're still interested in drinking some good Syrah because that's what that's what we're counting on. Pax Mela of Wingap and Pax Wine Cellars, thank you very much for being here today. Levy, thank you very much. Pax Mela. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.